Today we'll be discussing legendary comedian George Carlin, and we'll be discussing the dangers of cannabis edibles to children. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing the legendary comedian George Carlin and the new documentary on his life, HBO's American Dream. And we'll be discussing cannabis edibles and their dangers to children. Yummy. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay, Ali, so, you know, we're going to start off talking about George Carlin. Obviously, cannabis figures quite prominently into George Carlin's life, and that's why these two topics are connected today. I want to take a step back. You know, I'll be honest with you, just as you admit your ignorance sometimes to me about some of the medical topics, I didn't Never. know a lot about George Carlin. That's uh, I, I've seen obscene, him in some anyway, movies, no. obviously, and I know he's a legend in stand-up. I don't think I've ever seen one of his stand-up specials, crazy, or listened to one of his albums. And I knew Hippy Dippy Weatherman. I knew the seven words. I thought the seven words were from like the 80s and 90s, by the way. So I totally had the wrong decade for when that was a big controversy. And that in itself says a lot about George Carlin, yes. which we'll get to and in so, a moment. And then we'll watch this documentary, which is excellent. Judd Apatow is a director and co-director and a producer on it. He was obviously a huge George Carlin fan, huge influence on him. And so I watched as I learned so much in this. And of course, we don't want to just rehash the documentary to everybody. So I thought, let's start off with something different. So you talk about George Carlin in the class that you teach. Those of you who have heard this on the podcast before, Ali teaches a few classes at Queen's University in Canada to the theater program. And one of the drama, drama department, department, sorry, yes, you know, yes. drama, theater, yep. whatever. Anyway, yeah, yeah, you're in the right space. And one of the classes, is it intro, introduction to stand-up comedy? What is it called? One is intro to stand-up comedy. One okay. is diversity. I do want to talk about the diversity comedy. one on another episode. But for the intro to stand-up comedy, do you cover George Carlin and talk about him to the class? Yeah. And, you know, I was being facetious earlier when I said that's unacceptable. I suggested it's unacceptable that, that you don't know George Carlin. I only say that because it's you and you're a fan of comedy and stand-up. I'm not saying anybody has to know who George Carlin is, but to know this person, to know this human being is to be incredibly impressed by his body of work, his work ethic, his story. And yeah, this documentary was fantastic. And I'm really happy it was done. Judd Apatow, by the way, another great documentary, which maybe we'll talk about one day, about Gary Shandling, who again, another type of legendary yeah, actually, comedian. Actually, we uh, should watch that and talk about that because he is such a legend. I have oh, watched it. Oh, I'm yeah. ahead of well, you. I should that, watch buddy. it and then we should talk about it. We should put that on for this yeah. summer, perhaps. So let's start with this and then we can kind of go into some specific interesting facts about George Carlin. But, you know, really, why is he so important? If I'm one of your students and I'm like... Explain to me his significance in the comedy landscape of North America or the world. Fair question. Fair question. Uh, the world. I will direct people for the answers to this question. You can find the New York Times obituary from 2008 when he died about George Carlin. And I think a lot of this stuff I knew, but the amazing thing about George Carlin, I constantly, constantly learn 
more things about him. And you're like, what? When did that happen? How is that possible? Right. So the documentary serves again to, to introduce me to so many different things about him. But George Carlin, I introduce him from two different angles. Number one, his body of work, which is so incredibly impressive, and also his pushback against establishment. Like that's all one thing. But number two, George Carlin, if you take all the George Carlin material and you take all the Robert Klein material, people may know Robert Klein is very big in the 70s and 80s, continued to act throughout the 90s, 2000s, still you know, active as an actor. There's nothing original left, it feels like. If you're a comedian in the you know 2000s and you're like, I have this great idea for a bit. Yeah, Carlin did that. I have this. Oh, yeah, Carlin did that. Oh, yeah, Carlin has something. And at some point between Carlin and Klein, you go, is everything just done? Is it, You have to really sort of, they're a good indication to you that you got to work harder because they take these basic concepts that you are flirting with and they examine them so thoroughly. I'm talking about George specifically, he examines things so thoroughly and does such a great job of wringing the funny out of all these concepts that there's nothing like for you to do it, you know, would just would seem inevitably uh, half-assed, you know? George Carlin is also very interesting because of his journey. He started off button down. You learn a lot about a history, particularly this history of the 70s and this cultural shift in the 70s. You can learn about it through the lens of George Carlin too, which I also like. And that's another reason I bring him up because uh, George Carlin, like Joan Rivers, like Richard Pryor, they all started completely different personas when they were on stage. And one of the greatest things about George Carlin he recognized, and he, you know, this is written about in the obituary as well. He recognized that he felt like a sellout. You know, he said, I was entertaining the fathers and mothers of the people I sympathized with, and in some cases associated with, and whose point of view I shared. And then he said, I felt like a traitor. Like, I don't want to, his whole thing was, I don't want to entertain these 40 year olds. It's the thoughts of their children who are college age and in college and who are much more socially progressive. Those are the people who I connect to. There's another element of George Carlin. This is a little grimmer, Asif, but there's another element, which is he illustrates the overall general uselessness of comedy. And what I mean by that is just recently, you know, the Roe versus Wade was back in the news and people were talking about, you know, abortion, fetus, the when does life start, this kind of stuff. And George Carlin, again, which happens so many times throughout any given year, his words have come back about the GOP, about the GOP. You know, the U.S. right wing party has always looked at this was his bit was about you are so important when you're a fetus to the right wing and then you're born and then you're irrelevant. Now we don't want yeah, to help that, you that in any way. That bit is from the early eighties, maybe during exactly. the time of Reagan. Right. And then you're important again, once you're of military age, right? So for 18 years, you're on your own. We don't care about you. And the school shootings again have illustrated, you know, not illustrated, but brought those words back to life. So George Carlin, you can come at him from so many angles, but to answer the question, who is George Carlin? Interestingly, and we'll get to this, interestingly, high school dropout, interestingly, member of the Air Force. That's also interesting because of who he was and what he stood for and was a disc jockey. That was his entrance into this world of stand-up comedy. His first album was in 1967, Takeoffs and Put Down. He did a number of albums after that. He had more than 80 major television appearances during that time. Ed Sullivan, Johnny Carson. He was, uh, I 
you know, on Saturday Night Live early yeah, he on. He might have first, been the first stand-up well, He was the first host. He was the first. Not the first stand-up. He was the first host. host of Saturday Night Live, the very first episode. That's right. And his thing is interesting because he was well-loved on mainstream television. But the George Carlins and the Robert Kleins and the Richard Pryors, nobody benefited more from HBO coming out than these guys. They thrived in the non-censored world where you had plenty of like button-down comedians. But the journey of George is also this button-down comedian who then starts to connect with the counterculture elements. Why are we fighting this war in Vietnam in the 70s? Why are we doing this? Why are we not treated? Why do we let black people? He has this great joke about Muhammad Ali, right? About like, they were okay with him killing people, but they didn't want him to beat up people, right? Like this whole thing because he was stripped of his title because he didn't want to go to war. And, you know, these conscious dissenters and all this, this is who he sided with, you know, and his comedy really, another reason I teach George Carl is because if you want to introduce students for the first time to the concept of punching up versus punching down, George was always punching up against the government, against these media companies, against various politicians, always against people in power and exposing their double standards and their hypocrisy. And the reason I talk about the uselessness is because if comedy was efficient and effective in, you know, sort of dismantling the hypocrisy and double standard and the corrupt things that these so many of these politicians do... It would have ended all in the 80s at peak George Carlin. It would have ended all George Carlin. But in fact, not only did it not end, we had a whole era of Trump and Trumpism and people who connect all that. So you want as a comedian so desperately for comedy to be this vehicle. You can take down the world with one good comedy show. It's just simply not true. You know, John Stewart also, I always think about like that show exposed so much that was going on and yet it continues to go on probably more so. But George Carlin, in any case, highly, highly accomplished, decorated. I think, let me get back to this, uh, his awards. His album FM and AM won a Grammy Award for Best Comedy Recording. Altogether, he had a number of different awards. No, I didn't realize that AM, FM, that I'm not sure if it's AM, FM or FM, AM, but it's an interesting album. I didn't realize that one side, the AM side, is kind of his old style of comedy, kind of very clean or whatever. And then the flip side is him getting into the. So in that one album, he's moving into this edgy counterculture early 70s. Yeah, that's right. Just getting back to one thing I was saying before we move on, he won a total of four Grammys. I don't know how many he was nominated for, but he won a total of four Grammy Awards. He was named the recipient posthumously of the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, one of the greatest honors you can get as a comedian. I didn't know this. He had a 1994 sitcom, didn't last yeah, very long. George the Carlin. George so they Carlin talk about show, it briefly right? in the documentary. It's interesting. Sam yeah. Simon, who's responsible for many shows, Taxi, uh, The Simpsons, Tracy Ullman, was the executive producer and showrunner. and they did not get along, suffice to say. And so, yes, I remember that show being on. I never watched it, but I remember it being on in the 90s. And it's interesting. So this goes back to some of the interesting things I found during my research and then watching this documentary about George Carlin. So he actually, as a kid, wanted to be like Danny Kaye. So Danny Kaye was this famous, you know, he was the everyman, a physical comedian, actor, singer, singer dancer. He was everything. Red hair sure. guy, hilarious. And that was his ideal. And in fact... And then he, as you said, kind of did the disc jockey stuff when he was in the Air Force, got into that. He was actually in a comedy duo with a guy named Jack Burns, did not know that. And then they kind of went their separate ways. But he always had this in the back of his mind. His daughters interviewed extensively in this documentary. 
his daughter Kelly, and she says he never got that out of his mind. That's why he did, in his later years, the sitcom. That's why he did Shining Time Station. He was Shining Time Station, you know, uh, with he's like the train conductor in Shining Time Station, the children's program, right? Ringo Starr did that in the UK, and then he did it in the US. It just, you know, why would he do those things? Because he always wanted to be that Danny Kay, jack-of-all-trades performer. There's also an interesting element here, Asif, that an interesting picture to paint about George Carlin's timeline. And as you talk, you're talking about things that you learn and things that I learn. I didn't know this, that I did know about the comedy duo. I didn't know much about Jack Burns. I knew he was in a duo for a short period of time. But that duo got such a rave review from Lenny Bruce that they got representation immediately. And when they broke up, George Carlin was able to keep that representation. Without that representation, it's hard to say where George Carlin would have gone, what, what he would have amounted to. And the reason I bring up Lenny Bruce also is because up until the 50s, and with many comics well into the 60s and 70s, but up until the 50s, you had a shtick. You had an act. You were a comedian who made jokes, and those jokes had nothing to do with your real life, right? Oh, my mother-in-law. My mother, my mother-in-law is so mean. She this and that. These are people who may not have even had a mother-in-law. It didn't matter. It was inconsequential. It was about making jokes. So, And there's these stories, I, I think I've told this on the podcast, where in the Borscht Belt era, in the 50s and 60s, they'd go to these resorts, all these comedians, and perform for these rich Jewish families in, in the summertime. And people from the audience would be like, heard it, heard it last night, right? Because you're just recycling the same material and you're not connected to it. And so Mort Saul, S-A-H-L, Lenny Bruce, The Second City, a couple of other duos here and there, they started bringing in real talk. This was unheard of before. This is people having actual opinions about politics, about current events, about like their actual feelings. So this is revolutionary. And you know, these are the people that George Carlin was looking at and being inspired by. So much so that you know, when Lenny Bruce was arrested once, George Carlin was in the audience and George Carlin made it so that he got arrested too. He said, you know, they came in asking for IDs and he said, I don't believe in ID. And they're like, hey, you're coming with us. And he made it so that he was in the wagon with Lenny Bruce. And funnily enough, in this documentary, somebody says, he told Lenny Bruce, he goes, I got arrested also. They asked me for ID. I told them I don't believe in ID. And Lenny Bruce said, you schmuck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? But eventually went on to respect him, give them rave reviews, and led to them getting representation. Well, in fact, Jack Burns, his old comedy partner, left to be part of Second City. That's one of the reasons he didn't want to to work oh, anymore yes. and go their separate ways. But as you said, you know, he was riding this high in kind of the late 60s of being like a basically a very classic traditional stand-up. And then he saw what was going on with the counterculture and decided to move into that and be more true to himself. So this is what you keep seeing in him. And basically he reinvented himself. And Bill Burr is interviewed in this documentary and he talks about how much courage it must take to do that. He was making, he being George Carlin, was making at the time, if he did a week run of shows, as you were talking about, in a certain city. It was at the Frontier yeah. Hotel in he Vegas. Yeah. $80,000 for the week. And he, I think where you're going is he got fired from that. 
Yeah. So basically, this kind of goes into him being arrested. He was arrested several times, but the first time was on July 21st, 1972, for saying these seven words. So his famous act, again, I thought it was later in his career, but he was in the early 70s, the seven words you can't say on TV. And his whole point of the act isn't to say the words and get a rise out of people. It's to say, why do we have, you know, however many 400,000 words in the English language? And it's these seven that people make such a big deal about. And, you know, and so, yeah, he was arrested. And in fact, it went, this issue of his words went to the Supreme Court of America, right, Ali? That's right. In 1973, one person, one individual complained to the FCC after listening to George's routine. And there's something about him listening yeah, with his the son car. or something. They were in the car. Says, yeah. They were in the car, right. And so he was and like- he was on the radio, obscene. so you know he couldn't control that. Just came on the radio, this station, decided to play one of his albums, right. which had the filthy words bit. And in the 70s, George asks a question that we are still, many of us asking today, was there something wrong with your hands that you couldn't just simply change the dial? Like, why listen to the entire thing? Now you're the jerk. Why are you subjecting your son to something that you think is obscene for him, right? So in any case, this was a huge case. Went to the Supreme Court, and I think it was 1978, later 70s, where it was actually upheld. The Supreme Court upheld the FCC, that order, or however you want to call it, that complaint, and sided with the FCC. And so it was kind of a blow to free speech for you know many people who, not just comedians, not just George, but anyone who was, you know, fans of free speech. They thought that this was definitely a blow against it. And what I found interesting later after this, after the seven words and him being part of the counterculture, well, first of all, you know, if we talk about the albums that he released in the early 70s, it's amazing how many comedians point to these as being the seminal works that, that influenced them. Everybody, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, Jerry Seinfeld, Bill Burr, everybody, Patton Oswalt, everyone talks about, you know, how influential these were, Judd Apatow as well. But then it's very interesting. Again, I did not know this. Towards the end of the 70s, people were kind of tired of it. Like the counterculture was over. The 80s were emerging. Disco, you know, Reaganomics, all this stuff is coming. And then he kind of fell out of favor. And there were other comics that were, you know, overtaking him. And Steve Martin is the one they talk about in the documentary quite a bit. We forget about that with Steve Martin and how he was basically an alternative comic back before that was even a term, right? Absolutely. And if you've read Born Standing Up, or if you haven't, I should say, if you have not read Born Standing Up, you may not know this, selling out arenas, selling out arenas, Steve Martin. Now, you know, many people are like, oh yeah, the guy from whatever this movie, you know, what's that parenting movie? I can't remember the Parenthood? one with the Martin. Father of the Bride. Parenthood? Father of the Bride is what I mean. The Father of the Bride movies or whatever. Three Amigos, this kind of stuff. Even though I was a fan of Steve Martin, I had no idea about how massive he was as a touring comedian in the late 70s and I, a little bit of the early 80s and then walked mm -hmm. away from all of it. Yeah. Just was uh, not fulfilled. So then Carlin was kind of going downhill. And then, as you said, he started getting these HBO specials. And then he kind of came back for a couple of things. First of all, I think Reagan and that whole... 80s era really engendered a lot of anger in George Carlin, and he wanted to talk about those things, not the stuff he was talking about before. And he kind of became a bit, not trite, but, you know, it was kind of been there, seen that, done that with his late 70s comedy. And so this was a new way, this kind of anger. And apparently he saw Sam Kinison performing and really thought, that's what I should be doing, this kind of angry person persona that so then he reinvented himself again again he could have coasted just for the rest of his career 
doing the same comedy. And then he reinvented himself again, had to start again at the bottom and then work his way back up. Just to touch on that, it almost seems like he was searching for a persona and then, well, maybe I'll do that. But really, he had a lot to be angry about and he was angry. You know, one of the times he was arrested, he was in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and he was, they talk about this in the documentary, he was at the Playboy Club. And the audience gets angry. They start leaving because he's making jokes about the Vietnam War, right? He's finding his new Carlin and he's talking about what he wants to talk about. And like, wouldn't you be furious? It's like, this is the Playboy Club. All you do is objectify women here, but I can't make jokes about people dying in Vietnam. Like, I mean, things like that were happening throughout his life as he was getting arrested and all, and but being recognized by the industry at the same time and getting that, you know, those boosts. His comedy was obviously well accepted, but then also like the establishment was constantly like oppressing him, I would almost go as far as to say, right? So he had the anger, but I think watching Sam Kinison, he was like, oh, I can use I think that's more like, yeah, I don't want to make it seem like he was like, oh, I'm going to use that persona now. I don't think that's it. I think these are all things that were internal to him that he was expressing in different ways. And it's almost like you have to find yourself. We're not the same person you are when you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, right? And he had to kind of identify with that. And I think- and Bill Burr kind of says, that. I think what a lot of comics will do is just coast. They're like, I found this. This is my stage persona. I'm going to stick with this. But he didn't do this. And he says it's so hard. And, and Bill Burr has a hilarious story in it where there was a taping of Carlin at Carnegie, which is an HBO special. So Bill Burr went, went with his buddies who are into stand-up comedy to actually heckle George Carlin, make fun of him. Because they're like, look at this has been over the hill. We're going to make fun of him. It's also a comment on what jerks come out of the city of Boston. But anyway, I love Bill Burr, but even Bill Burr would admit just like totally. He was a bit sheepish anyway, about that in the hilarious. documentary, but basically yeah, he he's like, he should be. but it was so amazing. It put them all in their place, right? They couldn't say anything because it was such an amazing special. And then he had this renewed kind of respect for George Carlin after that. And then he basically, you know, continued on with like that, you know, almost to the end of his career, doing some more acting. People saw him in like Bill and Ted's movies and some of Kevin Smith's movies. So he continued that. I don't want to give away too much in the documentary. It's excellent. I'll, I'll get your thoughts in a second. It talks a lot about his family life, definitely some hardships in his family life and how that kind of influenced him in his later years, especially. But yeah, Ali, what did you overall you think about the documentary that we watched? Well, my sentiments about this documentary are, I think Judd Apatow is at the top of his game in this documentary production world right now. But he also did, and I should mention, I have to mention, it's directed by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio. If you don't know Michael Bonfiglio, this guy is also a huge deal in the comedy world. Very recently did Ricky Velez's special, Patrice O'Neill's special, Gary Gullman's special, The Great Depression, Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry before Seinfeld is also something he directed. So he is a huge fan of comedy and very good at getting to the heart of who people are. And of course, Judd Apatow, as I mentioned, the Gary Gullman thing, the Gary Shandling thing, I think. And, you know, Judd Apatow at his core, before he was anything, he was a comedy super fan, right? We didn't have the word nerd out in that day, but he was a massive comedy I think we talked nerd. about this before. I think we did. We have, where he pretended to be something yeah, he to wasn't any just interviewed to Seinfeld and has this old, old interview with him and Jerry Seinfeld. And yeah, I mean, you're right. He's a super fan. Exactly. 
super fan. And you see that, like they're really showing the best of uh, George Carlin and all his contributions. So I really like it. And I, I think it's something that you could watch twice and be like, oh, I missed that the first time. There's just so much information coming. You're, you're watching things that George said or that his wife wrote. And at the same time, hearing things. I mean, it's like almost a sensory overload, but there's so much information to digest about George's life. I really, really liked it. George Carlin also, FYI, in case you're wondering, yes, liked the drugs. Lots of, you know, personal trials and tribulations. Uh, you know, cocaine was his, I think, his favorite, but he had a heart attack. He had two open heart surgeries. And that era you were talking about between 77 and 82, those five years were hyper non-productive because of his health problems as well. He, he tapered down his cocaine use, but then eventually alcohol and Vicodin, Vicodin were a big part of his life. But weed was always, always there. And if there's anybody who is like angry at the government for like putting people in jail for what is effectively a weed that grows in the grass, it was George Carlin. So I wanted to just wrap up with something that he said in the special, which I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on. It includes a lot of his comedy bits, again, from all different eras, which is really interesting to see. And, and quite a bit, like minutes and minutes of specials. They won't just have a, a, you know, a few seconds here and there. Towards the end of his career, he adopts this very interesting persona that people talk about. I'd say the last maybe five, four comedy specials or so. He's kind of a nihilist, like saying he's removing himself from basically society in the world, looks at himself as an onlooker just watching what's going on and being amused by it, not getting angry or upset at, you know, the things in the world, but just being amused. He's like the watcher from Marvel comics for you nerds out there, just kind of observing and being amused by tragedy, being amused by things like that. And so, you know, Hassan Minaj is interviewed in the, in the documentary. He's like, is he being a nihilist or is he using the persona of a nihilist to actually make us care? And it's very unclear what exactly he was trying to do. Roseanne Barr actually interviewed him on her show, her talk show. If you remember, she had a talk show and she basically is like, I don't believe it. I think you're someone who actually cares too much. And that's why you have this persona. And George Carlin, in his own way, kind of admits that she's probably onto something. But he has this quote in the show. He says, you can't care and be really funny. Just want to get your thoughts on that as a comedian and not a doctor. There's something to it. I don't think it can be regarded as a universal truth. But I think to truly care gets in the way of you stepping back. I'm talking about like issues, whatever. If you really, if, if abortion is something that, you know, you know, your personal life would have been so different if you were not able to get an abortion or your partner was not able to get one at a certain age and it would have had a negative impact on your life. And that's part of you. It's a little difficult to get into the funny, the observer status funny, I think, sometimes. Like I said, I think it does apply sometimes. I don't think it's a universal truth. I think some people are definitely able to do it. I know that I was always at my funniest when my kids were annoying me the most, and then I would go on stage and just take a huge dump on my kids. It always resonated the most, even though it's something that's completely fresh, hours old, days old, and then try to do the same joke, you know, three months later, but the kid has changed. The kid doesn't do that thing that I hated so much anymore. And it just doesn't resonate with the, it's the same thing. And I'm trying to conjure up those same emotions, but it would never hit the same way. So again, it doesn't always, and you know, my kids 
being like yelling maniacs is not the same thing as like very, very huge issues like uh, whatever incarceration and, you know, fighting unjust war and corruption and this kind of stuff. But in general, nihilism probably helps to some degree. All I think about when I hear nihilism, I think about the big Lebowski. They're okay, nihilists, so dude. It was this like is totally thing. off topic. I haven't seen Top Gun and I haven't seen the big Lebowski. Dude, this is awful news. I want to expose you for the fraud that well, you are. Well, this is being okay. recorded. But listen, just to wrap up this section, <laughs> uh, George Carlin, I learned a lot. Really, I have so much respect for the guy after hearing, especially hearing all these comedians just rave about him. And this documentary is really good. Again, if you're a bit of a less educated person on Carlin, like I was, I think people would really enjoy it. So uh, definitely check it out. You know what? And I'll add to that. I'm a fan. I teach about him and I still learn so much about him. And this is not footage you see every day. You don't see Stephen Colbert and Bill Burr and Stephen Wright, the greats from when I was a kid, you know, like Stephen Wright talking about George Carlin's influence and what they still remember about him, Chris Rock interviewing him. And it's to be watched by any person with even a cursory interest in stand-up comedy. That's the way I'll frame it. George Carlin loved marijuana. It's well documented. I wonder if he'd love edibles. I don't know. We are talking about this today. You know, it, it, there is a connection, obviously, with George's love for marijuana. But our friend Iman El Husseini, who we had on the show with her partner Jess Solomon a few weeks ago, great episode, by the way. You should definitely check that out. She made this comment about, you know, MMs in a food truck. They are edibles, they're marijuana infused edibles in an M&M package, in a food truck, in her neighborhood. And for people like Asif who grew up with the ice cream man, and all of a sudden, you know, that it has the same look, the truck, the package has the same look as M&M, and now seeing something that was destined for kids now being very much for adults, I think it struck a chord in you and you promised this episode. So here we are. And let's talk about this. Why are we concerned about children and edibles? How often is it happening that children are consuming edibles? Yeah, so good question. And something I am concerned about, and I told him on that it's not that good. She seemed to enjoy it, but she also is child-free, so maybe that's why. By the way, as a quick aside, you're right. We don't have any edible trucks in our neighborhood, thankfully. And sometimes we have the ice cream man, but sometimes you hear that ringing of a truck going by and you get so excited yeah. and you run out as a kid with your change, hoping to buy it. And it's the guy who sharpens your knives. And uh, I like yeah, that I'm guy sure too, though, huh? As a uh, chef. Whose lawnmower blade doesn't <laughs> yeah. need a... Uh, so it yeah. was very disappointing to me. I don't know if that happens in the US, but it definitely happens in Canada, the knife sharpening guy. Anyway. So this has been an issue that's been rising over time. And when you look at the stats, because we've had increased legalization of marijuana in various states in the US and, of course, in Canada as a nation several years back, we had an increase. So I'll give you some examples. In Washington state, unintentional cannabis exposures among children under six tripled in the past five years after retail cannabis stores opened. Nationally, if you look at 2016, there were 187 exposures to marijuana edibles amongst kids under age 12 in the US. All unintentional. You're focusing on the unintentional. By 2020, that number had risen to 3,100. So from 187 to 3,100 in four years, and a majority of those 3,100 under age five. 
Some more data for you, Ali. Edibles were responsible for nearly half of almost 4,000 marijuana exposures amongst children under age 9 between 2017 and 2019. That was a study published in the journal Pediatrics. Again, exposure is more common, again, for those between ages 3 and 5 and was obviously more frequent in states where cannabis was legal. There was also a similar phenomenon in Canada. An article just published this past year in a journal called JAMA Network Open. It looked at all cannabis-related emergency department visits in Ontario, the province we live in, among children nine and under in a period of from January 2016 to March 2021. And so basically what they found is that during the pre-legalization period, there was 81 visits to the emergency room for a cannabis ingestion, this inadvertent cannabis ingestion. And by the time, in the last time period they were looking at where edibles were now legal in Ontario, it had increased to 317 visits. So almost four times as much in the span of about four years because of this increase in legalization. Okay, now I asked this next question on behalf of all the parents who look at their kids who are a bunch of spazzes and go, what if I fed this kid an eighth of an edible? Would that be the end of the world? Maybe this kid could calm down, give me some peace of mind. It's crossed people's minds, I'm sure. Not the most responsible thought, but you have thoughts sometimes about your kids. They're being rushed to the eMERGE in a number of these cases. There is cause for panic just because this is not made for kids. But what are the symptoms? What do you see in kids who have these Yeah, animals? and just so I can be absolutely clear, it is against the law to give any child under 18 in Canada marijuana. Even if you're giving it for medicinal purposes, it is illegal unless it's prescribed by a physician. Don't worry, parents. We're working hard to fight that law. Okay, so usually what happens is you just become sleepy, right? Makes kind of sense. They may be unsteady when they're walking. We call that ataxia when you're unsteady with your walking. And they may look, they may look high in quotation marks, or obviously because we're talking about THC. And children who consume a larger quantities could have persistent vomiting. There's a syndrome called this hyperemesis syndrome, which is hyperemesis vomiting. So increased vomiting in relation with cannabis. In fact, people who are heavy cannabis users can also get it. So so recreational users. And in some rare cases, again, when you go to the emergency room, you may appear comatose. And then people just don't know. Your kid is comatose, have no idea why. And then you have to go backwards and try and figure out what happened. You can have slowed breathing because, again, it's depressing your nervous system and your nervous system controls breathing. In very rare cases, sometimes you need a mechanical ventilator to help kids breathe, which is pretty scary for parents. Now, usually the marijuana would just kind of absorb and over a few days – one to two days, they come back to normal. There are a couple of interesting cases in the literature, though. There's a few reports of seizures, actually, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's insane. But what's also interesting about that is that cannabis is sometimes prescribed for right. seizures. Right, we did a whole episode. I think but our first episode was causes, yeah. yeah. Our first yeah, episode. So, you really love your cannabis. <laughs> that's right. We're bringing it back again a year later. Okay, so that's a really important point, Ali. So what we were talking about, we were talking about CBD, which is, is the cannabinoid. So marijuana has two components, cannabinoids and THC. And cannabinoids are what we think may have some efficacy in terms of seizures. And that's what we were talking about before. THC is what gets you high. And so most of the preparations we use for seizures have very high CBD and minimal amounts of THC, not zero. And so CBD, we don't think will provoke seizures. At least there's no solid evidence about that. THC is a bit different. And remember, what people want with these edibles is to get high. Like that's why you're taking them. You don't care about CBD. You care about the THC most of the time. 
So what happens is these have high amounts of THC in them. And so THC may have some anti-convulsant properties. In other words, it may prevent seizures, but there's also some evidence in certain people it could be pro-convulsant and provoke seizures. Very hard to predict who it might be pro-convulsant in and maybe who it wouldn't be. The other thing with the edibles, though, is, of course, you're not just taking one usually, right? You're taking a bunch because it's a kid who doesn't know. They're like, I found a bag of Skittles or M&Ms. I'm going to eat those. And, you know, they were hidden away by my parents. So, obviously, I'm going to eat these because they were hidden away. Oh, yeah. That's actually the horrifying part of all this. As I, you know, I talk in, in jest and all that. But this is the scariest part because I know pretty much every adult who's tried edibles has one story at least about like taking an edible, waiting for an hour or more, nothing happens, they take the second edible, and then the two of them somehow hit, and you are borderline comatose. And that's just two in a fully right. grown adult. So, so it, And so what I'm saying horrifying. is nobody takes this kind of dose of THC normally, right? And you also got to keep in mind, like, we're talking about adults who are supposed to be taking it, right? Now we're talking about a five-year-old who takes a big handful of M&Ms. Like, this is not good. So then you can say, okay, yeah, THC doesn't normally cause seizures, but in that child with that weight, right, a, a low weight with a huge amount, it, it could certainly cause. So there are some cases. There's also a case that was published in 2017, a bit debatable about a child who died after being exposed to cannabis. It's a bit complicated because they also had myocarditis at the same time. Myocarditis, we all know, we've heard about it because the risk with the, some of the COVID mRNA vaccines and myocarditis. So now everybody's an expert on myocarditis. But if you read the article, they're just basically saying these two things occurred at the same time. They're not saying the cannabis caused myocarditis and whatever. Maybe it was a coincidence or whatever. So anyway, I wouldn't say death is a major risk factor, but it's more the sedation, maybe problems breathing, maybe hospitalizations, and in very rare cases, seizures. You know, you just mentioned people take edibles to get high. That's why they want the THC. But a lot of people take them for sleep as well, right? That's another, I just listened to Howie Mandel on an interview talking about that's the only way he can shut off his mind at night, take an edible. You're right. And of course, you see, of course, they cause some sedation. That's what happens with these kids. They're sedated. So I've heard a lot about people taking these at nighttime. And that's why they're so prevalent in people's houses. And yeah, I don't know what to say. Howie Mandel very obviously has OCD. He's been very public about his struggles with OCD in the past. So much so we could have done an episode with him and OCD, right? Talking about- We, uh, we absolutely about could that. He's a prisoner in his own mind if he's not medicated, properly medicated. I'm not talking about edibles. And then the edibles right. are an extra so thing. So there are lots of people, lots of people, Ali, who self-medicate with drugs, not just marijuana, but other things, when in fact they perhaps should be using things that are- maybe more conducive to a normal life. Like I'm not sure, you know, taking marijuana every day because say you have anxiety and that's interfering with your sleep. I'm not sure if that's- Versus let's say therapy and exercise or what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, therapy, exercise or medications which don't have, you know, a similar sedation side effect profiles. Drug well, peddler. Dude, you're also peddling drugs by what you just said. Like- <laughs> I said exercise and no, I said exercise in the but I meant therapy. By using I was so... people who, who use it to help with sleep. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think it's up for debate. I think, let me just put it this way. A lot of people self-medicate when maybe they should be doing more. Some of the things you suggested and maybe we'll leave it at that. But one thing I want to highlight to you though, Ali, is this issue of the packaging. I sent you some pictures in our Google Drive. Did you see those pictures? Yeah, it, I mean, I don't understand how the, we don't have lawsuits from parents left and right. Maybe we do, but this is obscene. 
this is just crazy. describe what the pictures is. I'll post them on social media, but yeah. yeah, yeah, please. So one of them is Skittles. We all know Skittles. It's a very like uh, you know, if you have a sweet tooth, that Skittles bag, it's like joy oh, and happiness up in a bag. A lot of colors. One right? bag there, will be done like the in, rainbow. You know, a day probably if I had a bag. <laughs> Listen, you're inhaling it in under five minutes. I don't know what this a day thing is. So you have Skittles. You have the word there, Skittles. So this is why I don't understand why it's not a lawsuit. It says share size. And then it says zombie Skittles. The word zombie is in smaller letters above. And then it says beware. And it's like, dude, what do you? And so that's the real Skittles. And then the weed Skittles is all of that. Plus some marijuana leaves. What do you call that on a piece of paper when you have, you know, in the background, you have a, oh God, I never remember that word. You know, you have like this light print on the back of a paper. Sometimes. Background. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. It's a light background. There's a word that I have to look up while you discuss this. But then the other one is lifesavers that you have. And so it says lifesavers. It has the pictures of all these fruits already a lie. There's no real fruit in lifesavers. And then that's a whole other conversation. Lifesavers, wild berries, but then it just has the word gummies underneath it and medicated. No five-year-old knows anything about that. Gummies. Gummy bears. We love gummy bears, but it just says the word medicated in very small letters. It does say THC. I mean, you guys, I mean, we'll, we'll post these. You have to see them. It's unbelievable. They're exactly the same. Ali says it says Skittles. It says Lifesavers. Yeah. I know the word. It's watermark. 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 You remember yeah, watermark? Yeah. It looks like watermark in the background. Just some marijuana yeah, I would just leaves. ignore that. I didn't even see it the first time I looked at it. I had to no, read exactly. the caption in the article. So this is from a New York Times article from last year, about a year ago, last May, where it talks about a lawsuit. The title of the article is Big Candy is Angry. <laughs> They're very angry. So Wrigley, we all know Wrigley. Was it double mint gum? Sure, a big Chicago That's corporation, right. Wrigley That's Field. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's owned by Mars. They filed a suit against five companies last year for selling cannabis infused edibles uh, that look like Skittles, Starburst, Lifesavers, the ones we just talked about. And it's funny, they focus on the intellectual property rights. And of course, you know, one of our good friends is an IP lawyer, so we could always ask him about that. But they said, that it could lead people, especially children, to mistakenly ingest the drugs. This is one time where I 100% agree with Big Candy. Actually, I agree with it most of the time. <laughs> you agree with everything Big Candy has ever done. They're sending me That's samples. Not it's about. not drug companies that send me samples. It's Big Candy. Yeah, exactly. Me now quadruple the aspartame. I was just like, all right, I'm into it. And so the quote from this article, it's like, you know, normally Big Candy is vilified in the wellness era because of refined sugar and 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 all the harms of associated with that but they're an unlikely sheriff in the wild west of recreational marijuana consumption roamed by pandemic stressed adults this is like new york times writing to the to the extreme it's so good <laughs> and, and it's interesting similar lawsuits were filed by hershey mondelez international Mondelez, you might be like, who are they? They make Sour Patch Kids. So they were suing- Oh, like a second mother to you, basically. They were suing a company that was marketing Stony Patch Kids. Now, those lawsuits have all been settled, and the companies agreed to halt the production. But these are small companies in general, so they're just like, let's make our money while we can. So this is even more dangerous because not only are these in people's households, but they look exactly like this. So, you know, for once, I think even Ali will agree with Big Candy on this one. I can make this one exception. Yeah. Sorry, Big Candy. Sorry this is happening to you. Hate to see a little guy go down like this. 
okay, what's the solution, bud? What do we do here? Besides, these lawsuits don't help. You know, it feels like more companies will just pop up and do this in the short term for a quick buck and then settle lawsuits and it'll go away. But it doesn't feel like anything is in place to end this packaging. So what do you, yeah, well, what do you I, see as a solution? I think we should solution? discount the packaging because it's not everywhere. So a lot of states, especially in the US, still don't have laws regarding this. I'm assuming New York State, but we, we can look into that. That's where Iman lives. But Colorado has put in uh, requirements that everything has to be in child-resistant packaging, include the letters THC. You cannot sell in that state edibles that look like people, animals, or fruit to kind of make you think that they're not candy. So you need to do that. You need to do this uh, child. Colorado always at the forefront of the. I mean, of the they were at the forefront of marijuana. Forefront of yeah, weed okay. itself. I know, yeah. which is, I mean, yeah. that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. The they also talk about anyway. maybe individually wrapping each edible item in the package, like kind of like a cough drop is sometimes individually packaged. Great for <laughs> the environment. Just package Listen, every man, single you got to balance these things and maybe limiting the potency of each individual edible, like putting limits on that. But, you know, it's tough. Canada has very strict laws. So packaging has to have a uniform color and a smooth texture, no cutout windows, so you can't see what's inside it, no scents or sounds. I don't know why you'd have sounds in a thing, but they said, like, what kind of sound would that be? I don't know. But I think they meant scents and things like that. So, But even despite that, a child in New Brunswick was hospitalized last year after eating Stonio cookies, made to look like your good buddies, the... My good buddy is the Oreos, but I think there's more that individual consumers of edibles have to do. What are you suggesting exactly? I'm suggesting we listen to Donald Trump, Ali. We got to lock them up. Everybody chant with me. Lock them up. Lock them up. A rare quote from Trump on this podcast. And just before anyone thinks you're talking about Muslims or Mexicans or candy eaters, can you uh, elaborate on Lock up the edibles, of course. You know, people are like, no, no, we put them on the highest shelf. Yeah. My mom did that yeah. with the cookies. Yeah. Useless, useless and, technique. And, you know, of course, everybody knows that. If you have a two-year-old who's figured out that the cookies are up there, they're going to get a chair and stack stuff on top of it and then reach up or put another kid on their shoulders. I mean, how many YouTube videos are there about kids, like, figuring out ingenious ways to get around stuff like this? Like, it's ridiculous. It has to be locked up in, like, a locked box with a combination sure, on like it. Like a safe. Yeah, this is what it has to do. And you could be like, oh, so you're such a prude and whatever, but... Listen, this is responsible ownership, right? We say that about guns, responsible gun ownership. No one's saying you can't have edibles. They're illegal in the country we live in. It's fine. But, uh, well, it's not really fine because I'm sure lots of people ingest those and drive. But anyway, that's another topic for perhaps another episode. But if you're choosing to do that, you need to be responsible about this too. And yeah, and especially for edibles that look like candy. Again, most kids aren't really that interested in getting into your 40-year-old scotch that, you know, most five-year-olds aren't into that. Maybe you're you know, teenagers or something, but even then scotch is disgusting. So yeah, I tell you, you know what I say, 40% of people who say they like scotch are lying. That's what I say about 40% of people who say they love double IPAs yeah, exactly. and things like that. It's yeah. like, come on. You don't. You what, don't what like are you that. trying to Anyway, them? but getting back to this. So I think it's just being responsible with having these edibles in your possession. And so, yeah, definitely lock them up. Okay. All right. Well, that's a buzzkill for a lot of people who are doing edibles right now, but it shouldn't be. It's basically common sense.
Okay, well, that's our show for today. Hopefully you guys found this interesting. Let us know what you guys thought about the show. Reach out to us, drvcomedian at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're everywhere, Dr. V Comedian. Ali, anything you got coming up? You said the book we got September 27th. I remember that from you. That's right. The book's coming out then. Uh, Run the Burbs is a sitcom that I'm on. We start filming in September. That means less to to people. I mean, that doesn't mean anything to anybody except for our crew and and people who are excited that the show's coming back. But you won't be able to see the filming. But you will see the show, God willing, in January. And I am touring. I'm touring with the one-man show, Does This Taste Funny?, across Western and Central Canada and uh, be it Just for Laughs Toronto in September as well. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. They're not medical advice, but really you should lock up those edibles. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.